You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. this decision to kind of take a step away from the series covered in dust uh, to look at really the Holy Week and to start it off in Matthew 21 on Palm Sunday and to journey with Jesus over a major ministry transition in his life from this Sunday until next. Easter was a building up climactic storyline that he was doing in the city of Jerusalem that didn't just start from the day that he was crucified. It started from the day he entered into that city. He would enter that city to claim his kingdom and he would not leave without it. He would enter that city with his life and he would not leave with it. He was entering that city to change the page of history, to turn the page of history from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Covenant and the Law into the Kingdom of God itself. And that is what we are we're looking at today, is the coming King in Palm Sunday. Let me pray for us once more, and uh, I want to share some of these scriptures. So Jesus, I thank you that you, you're an uncontested authority. If we were to uh, disobey the Constitution and obey you, the Constitution would be wrong. You are the King of Kings. You're the Lord of Lords. You have the final say. And I thank you that as we look into your scriptures today, that we're going to look into the face of not only the one that made us, the one who leads us, but also the one that loves us and paid a price for us. And so I thank you for your church, which is the inheritance of Easter. And I thank you for your hope that's coming alive today out of dead things. We make all things new in our life. And we are expecting and waiting for you to reveal that. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's an artist that I wanted to share about this morning uh, that lives in England but does work all over the world named Banksy's. And that's not actually his real name. It's an alias. Nobody Nobody really knows who this artist is. He's worth about $20 million dollars and meets with world uh, leaders all over, but has never appeared on any public forum. He actually wears paper bags if he ever has to go out to meet somebody in public. And they, they actually sell some of his artwork for up to, up to um, $2 million uh, that, that he sells anonymously, and he's worth uh, tons and tons of money and has lots and lots of influences, has won several awards. Um, but this artist, this is the quote um, that I'll read to you about this artist. I think it's pretty profound. He kind of um, is subversive. Uh, he is... Uh, He's kind of a renegade artist, doesn't play by the rules or the typical tracks of, of, of kind of art influence and affluence. He says, uh, artists need to realize something. There's a whole new audience out there, and it's never been easier to sell art. You don't have to go to college, drag around a portfolio, mail off transparencies to snooty galleries, or sleep with someone powerful. All you need now is a few ideas and a broadband connection. This is the first time the essentially bourgeoisie world of art has belonged to the people. We need to make it count. So one of the first uh, paintings that I want to show you this uh, morning is actually on the wall of Jerusalem that separates, uh, maybe we won't have it, uh, there it is, that separates the wall between um, Israelis and the Palestinians, um, obviously the two religious groups, the zealous groups that are fighting over control of the Gaza Strip there in the Middle East. And there's a wall that separates the two different um, societies, and on that wall, underneath the cloak of night, this guy, um, uh, this guy, this artist, which I can't remember his name now, uh, Banksy's, 
uh, artists would draw something like this. This, this. this boy, you can see the meaning pop off of the wall, right? He is looking like he's holding one of these bottle bombs that he's going to throw as a grenade across the wall, something that you'd maybe see a young Palestinian or young Israeli uh, soldier fighting with, but instead he's throwing flowers um, across the wall. And, and the meaning is punchy. The meeting jumps off of the canvas in this sense and gives a clear message uh, that what if we used our power and our authority and our efforts to fight for peace as opposed to fight for uh, war and to fight for control. Here's another slide or another piece. Um, this one kind of struck me. Uh, what you have is instead of the soldier kind of frisking down the citizen, you have the citizen, in this case the young girl, frisking down the soldier and the gun, as you can see, is painted off to the right the soldiers being frisked by the young and innocent child. To me, the meaning of the message is saying, what if instead of violence holding peace accountable, what if peace were to hold violence accountable? Instead of fear holding love accountable, what if love and trust held fear accountable in society? What would happen uh, in a society that was landscaped in that way? Let's take a, a look at another picture that kind of jumps off the screen. So this is a picture that typically, ironically and iconically, would have had Jesus at the center of it. These are some of the disciples at the feet of the cross of Jesus. But instead of Jesus in the crucifixion, we have a sign that says, Sales end today, uh, demanding and provoking the question, are we worshiping Christ or consumerism? Uh, as we follow Jesus, are we, are we worshiping ourselves or are we re worshiping the resurrected king? It has a, has a very profound and potent message. Here's another one. These messages kind of pop off the screen. So Steve Jobs, uh, who is kind of um, obviously a forefather of technology in the modern era and a major leader and business uh, leader, is, is looking kind of, uh, kind of dubious in this picture, in this painting. You can kind of see Steve looking a little bit scandalous. Uh, he's got a Macintosh computer potentially robbing somebody um, over his bag. And so you can see some of the themes are a little bit anti-capitalistic uh, you know, uh, and a little bit anti-Western, maybe you'd even say. Um, but these are some of the messages that he paints. And this final one, uh, this one's really sad, right? The kid with no likes. Uh, maybe making a commentary about how we're more connected because of social networking, but more disconnected than ever before. And the pain of loneliness in a socially connected world is just ironic, paradoxical thing. Artists know how to communicate with more than just words. Artists know that a picture is worth a thousand words. Artists know that when you communicate, you're not just communicating with your heart, you're communicating to other people's hearts. And so artists know how to send messages. I remember, there was, speaking of Andy Stanley earlier, there was, there was a quote that I remember that he gave that people um, are wired to follow messages of clarity. He said that even in the last presidential cycle, um, one of the reasons why Donald Trump won the presidency, according to his you know, study and understanding, is because Donald Trump had a clear message. It might not have been the best message or the highest character message, but it had a clear message, and people tend to follow, follow clarity even before they can follow character because messages are happening all the time. We're sending messages with what we're wearing. We're sending messages with our body language. We're sending messages with our posture. And people that are artists and graphic designers and speakers and politicians are all continually trying to fight and grab for the audience of communication and sending clear messages. So, so God, in his legacy, uh, in the Old Testament with the prophets, was not uh, opposed to or, or not um, new to the idea of communicating messages in scandalous and provoking ways, much like some of the pictures that are up here on the screen. For example, in Isaiah chapter 20, there is a prophet named Isaiah that you guys have maybe seen in a very big chunk of the major prophets in the Bible, um, whose job was, as he prophesied, not only to prophesy um, warning to the Israel, Israelite people, but he was supposed to prophesy it naked. 
So kind of like the short straw to draw is the old uh, prophet, is to draw the old pr uh, preach naked. That's a little awkward, right? So he's supposed to walk around the town. Don't know if he was a fit individual. Don't know if he was a crossfitter. Uh, but he was walking around naked, and he was speaking to the Israelites, not only with his words, but with his actions, communicating their vulnerability to the Assyrian attackers. That God is a prophet. Uh, God speaks through prophecy. He's not done speaking. He's never silent. He speaks in clear ways and powerful ways. And he wants to get his message across because he wants his heart to get communicated to the hearts of people. Here's another example in Ezekiel. Ezekiel had to go preach one morning, but instead of just going to put on a suit and a tie and a fun Easter hat, uh, Ezekiel had to go and cut his hair, and he had to whip his hair up into the, into the air and take a, um, a knife and cut off his hair to give himself a bad haircut before he preached uh, to, to the Is Israelite people. And the meaning of that, the meaning behind the message, was that as he was preaching, he was trying to show the glory. He was trying to show the strength getting cut down by the uh, Babylonian um, army. Ezekiel also had to preach for 390 days, if you guys remember this, and on his left side, and then had to turn over on his right side to preach for another 40 days to represent the 390 years of the northern kingdom being disobedient and the 40 years of the southern kingdom being disobedient. Hosea, last but not least, was told by God to marry a prostitute. A prophet was told to marry a prostitute so that as he preached, he could understand the heart of God towards Israel, who was a harlot, a prostitute, and betrayal, betraying of the heart of God. And so the heritage of God is on the screen, is that the heritage of, heritage of God's prophets has been always to communicate God's hearts to God's people in shocking and scandalous ways. The, the heart of God is to communicate. The heart of God is not to be vanilla and bland. The heart of God is not to be um, mute. The heart of God is to speak. And when God speaks, he speaks in stirring, stirring and sticky ways. He speaks as, as though children could understand it. He speaks in pictures and symbols and poems. He speaks in multiple arrangements of ways, not just verbal, but through, uh, through body language, through, through storylines, through narratives. God speaks through his prophets, his people. He speaks through creation. He speaks through, through consequences. He, he he speaks through circumstances and sometimes even speaks through animals, but God is always speaking. Sometimes he's quiet, but God never stops speaking. And so on Palm Sunday, as we look at this text, Jesus is going to arrive on the scene in Jerusalem for the final chapter of his earthly ministry. And as he moves in to the, the town gate of Jerusalem, he's going to say very little, but he's going to send a loud message. And uh, with the help of prophetic insight and with understanding of the, uh, of the stakes of his audience, the stakes of his message that he's bringing into the, into the city of Jerusalem, it's unmistakable what Jesus is saying. So unmistakable and so loud and clear, in fact, that Jesus is going to be, to go, to be killed for the message that he brings. He's going to provoke such an audience and provoke such attention to himself in what has largely been a very quiet and subdued ministry, he's going to move from the quiet margins of Galilee into the center and the heart of Jerusalem to preach a loud and clear and volatile message that ultimately gets him killed and, and claims his kingdom for all of eternity. This is how the passage begins. It says, Matthew 21, verse 1, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything else to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So Jesus is entering Jerusalem, which is like the Washington, D.C. of, of 
you know, of, of the religious establishment. It's the center, the Mecca, the, the hierarchy of the, the temple system is in Jerusalem. And, and he's doing it on Passover. Passover was uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover was once a year commemorating uh, the exodus of the uh, Israelites out of Egypt. And, and Passover was like the Christmas time. It was the time when everybody moved back towards family and back towards the center of town and journeyed towards Jerusalem. Uh, there was about uh, 50,000 people that were gathered there as citizens there in Jerusalem um, that were Jews. And about 150,000 would come in on a, on a yearly pilgrimage to kind of camp out, almost like Woodstock, just kind of camp out on the hills to go and visit for the Passover feast. And so this is a high time for the religious calendar when everybody would gather, let alone the other some hundred odd thousand making of, of Roman citizens that are all gathered around there, making the whole entire uh, group of people that are gathered in Jerusalem about two million people people all together. And Jesus decides from the Mountain of Olives in this town called Bethage, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, that when he enters the city, he is going to enter in a very specific way. He's not going to kind of walk in through the side gate. He's not going to kind of walk in under the cloak of night. He's not going to walk in kind of anonymously. He's going to walk in riding on a donkey. So the last place that he's been was in um, was in a town that was 100 miles, back in Matthew chapter 20, 100 miles away from Jerusalem. And he and his disciples were totally used to walking on foot. That was a very common practice back in that day. They weren't riding animals during most of his ministry. But all of a sudden, after 100 miles of journey, now all of a sudden it's decided that in the last two miles of that journey that he'd walked on foot up until this point, that he was going to start traveling on a donkey. We can see here this is not unintentional. It's intentional. It's not just meaningless or random or scattered. It's, it's, it's very poignant. It's very very intentional, and it's very symbolic. And he's going to ride in on this donkey to this massive town and audience uh, according to this prophecy. So in verse 4, it gives us a background for what the donkey would symbolize. You know, in our, in our culture, if you saw a jersey that said 23, you would know what that symbolized. If you saw a person moonwalking on a stage, you would know what that symbolized. It would bring up a connotation. And the connotation of the donkey we find in verse 4 says this, this took place as he rode in on this donkey to send a message. It wasn't just a speech. It was a message. It wasn't just, um, it, it, it wasn't just another uh, thing that Jesus was going to say or pray about in a parable. It wasn't just another healing. There is a very profound prophetic message that he does not want his audience to miss. And it comes out of uh, th this verse in verse uh, 4, which harks back to Zechariah 9, which I read at the beginning of service. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken about the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. He says it gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt and the foal of a donkey. Jesus wasn't entering as a pedestrian. He wasn't entering just as a worshiper. He had gone through his life as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a healer. But today he came in a different form. He came to give a different message that was different and distinct from the beginning of his ministry before he would tell people to be quiet that the kingdom of heaven is at hand uh, and advancing. But that the, the, the entrance of Jesus in Jerusalem was the establishment of the kingdom of heaven in the earth. And so he rides in in very con, um, conspicuous ways, in very obvious ways. And so in Jerusalem, uh, uh, we see a very large crowd gathered in verse 8. Okay, so in verse 20 of, uh, of the previous chapter, in verse 19, there was a small crowd that began to gather with him. 
There were many critics of Jesus, but there was a Galilean contingency, a small group of people that were healed by him and began to follow him as disciples. And so there was this crowd that began to gather. And by the time he gets to Jerusalem, them, them seeing the light bulbs going off and the, and the dots getting connected of who he was and what he was saying and that it was Passover and that it was prophesied, they were beginning to get his message. They were seeing the dots connected. They were seeing the writing on the wall, the picture on the wall. They were starting to see what he was getting at. And he moves into Jerusalem to this very loud crowd. This very obvious and overt uh, crowd that drew attention to itself. It would have been cell phones and selfies videotaping the thing with multiple views on YouTube and live streams because everybody would have wanted to see this thing. And Jesus came in on the donkey. It says a very large crowd spread out their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And they said to him, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is where we get the idea of Palm Sunday, that they were carrying these palms, and palms represented this prosperity, this arrival of peace, this kind of a fullness of uh, stability. Solomon would have put palms outside of the temple gates to represent just the authority and the presence and the peace of God, the power of God. And so they were taking these palm branches, they were waving at him to recognize him as the coming king, not just as a prophet, just as a teacher, but as the Messiah. There were some recognizing him and waving and designating that as in image barren ways with the palms, you know, shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, son of David, you are the Messiah. Hosanna in the earlier times would have meant save us, save us, save us. But in these latter days that the, the culture even changed to make way for the Messiah to come. In fact, Hosanna for many in that crowd would have meant he has saved us. He is saving us. He, he is in our midst. Our king has not left us alone. He has come to take his rightful place, his authority in this place. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus' story kind of hits, a, hits an apex in terms of his authority, authority. I told my mom she was watching the Warriors game with me last night. And uh, she said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, we're going to be preaching on Palm Sunday. And he was like, she said, well, it all goes downhill from there. <laughs> and I was like, mom, that's not true. He resurrected. Don't you know the end of the story? She was like, no, that was downhill from there. Depending on your take of it, we do see that in terms of political prowess and power, that was the apex of his ministry. It was the most popular, it was the most elevated in terms of human, human uh, mob rule, you might even say, or political approval rating was the highest on Palm Sunday. But, but as the days went on, from Sunday to Monday to Tuesday and Wednesday, we are in a holy week. This is what we call holy week. It's the last seven days of Jesus' life. And is the time when Jesus um, overtly, instead of privately and secretly praying for and bringing the kingdom in subtle and, and in, in kind of hidden ways, he overtly stands onto the platforms of the common day, almost like walking up to the White House lawn and declared something very powerful and very profound that was read by all the listeners and all the hearers that he was not just a prophet, but that he was a king. And he was a king that was peerless. And there was no other competition for his kingdom. He was making a very, uh, very loud statement to anybody that would hear, anybody in eyesight or earshot, was that he was the coming king, the one that was promised, the son of David, Hosanna, which is what the crowd shouted out. But we know from the book of Mark, there was about a 24-hour span from his approval rating being at its peak till he began to lose and wane some of his popularity it's the next verse, the next scene. There's really three scenes in the book of Mark of Matthew chapter 1 if you want to read it this week. There's three scenes that happen that show that the kind of kingdom he brought and the kind of king he was going to be was different than they expected. He walks up to the, to the lawn of the White House and they, and they cheer him in this colonnade. They, they kind of bring him in on this inaugural path 
on this donkey to, to claim his, him as king, expecting he would make a beeline to the Roman palace, to the governing officials, to confront the ruling authorities. They thought that he was going to come to free them from Roman oppression the way that they had interpreted the scriptures up to that point. But instead of taking a beeline, he takes a, a divergence. He moves to another path and goes, actually, instead of to the Romans, to the temple, to the religious elite. And this is what it says in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He didn't come to confront the Romans. He came to confront the religious establishment of the day. He overturned the tables, the money changers, and the benches who were selling doves. And it is written, he said to them, My house will be called, called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And then he says this, and The blind and the lame came to them in the temple, and he healed them. But when uh, uh, the blind and the lame came to them um, and healed them, verse 15, do we have it on the screen? Maybe not. Uh, and, and, he's, and, and, uh, and they asked him this question. He says, um, the, the people of the religious Sabbath said, did you hear what the kids said about you in the street? Did you hear the children are calling you Hosanna? Did you hear that they think you're a king? Did you hear that they actually think that you're the Messiah? And this is what Jesus says to them, much to their dismay. He says, yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read that from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night. They confronted him about his, his messiahood and, uh, and, and, the, and the religious establishment was saying, why aren't you in Rome? Why aren't you going to, to overturn Rome the way that, that, that we all expected you to do? And, and, and why aren't you coming in these ways? And, and he says, don't you know that the children recognize me as the messiah? Don't you recognize that, um, that if the children wouldn't have said it, that rocks would cry out, that infants would cry out? He confronts the religious establishment again in verse 18. It says, Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing except for leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they said. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but you can say to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea. The mountain that they were standing on was actually pointed to the temple. The tree that he was talking about was actually represented the temple. He came to talk about the temple, not the Roman palace, that the temple was failing to produce fruit. He was coming to say across the way at the mountain, he pointing at the temple, that if you have faith, then you would have direct access to God. That the, the curtain between God and man would be torn and the temple would no longer be needed because the cross would become the new temple. And when he pointed at the mountain, he said to that mountain, if you have faith, or he said to the people towards the mountain, if you have faith, you can call that mountain to come up. Jesus did not come just to rule over the people as king. He came to replace the authorities as king. And this is what got him killed ultimately in the coming seven days of his ministry. He was pointing to the temple system, not because he, he didn't like the temple system or didn't trust in the temple system. He was commenting really about the people that ran this, the, the temple system and their inability as men without the spirit of God to cause intimacy and authority to flow between God and man. It's a little bit like... Um, it's a little bit like Luke Walton with the Lakers, if you guys follow basketball. If a team doesn't do well, sometimes in basketball or in football or college football especially, usually the first one that takes the ax is the, is the coach. And if the coach gets replaced and a new coach comes in, the whole entire authority structure begins to shift. And what Jesus is saying here is that he's come to be king and not only to rule over all the other authorities, but he's come to replace all other authorities. And this is why they begin to, to call him a blasphemer and this is why they are, they are antagonized. Because, because basically what he's saying is that the temple system's not enough, but you're inadequate to run the temple system in ways that are going to create intimacy and authority between God and man. 
and he comes to replace it. He comes to change it. I don't know if you've ever been part of a classroom before where like midway through the teacher gets pregnant and has to like leave and a new teacher comes in and everything changes. The rules change, the authority changes, the culture changes. I remember in first grade, I had like a real bossy, old kind of crotchety lady that was, was my teacher named Mrs. Robinson. And she left and this really cute uh, first, first grade teacher named Mrs. Schuster came in and I was like in love with her for the rest, rest of the year. And the teacher comes in and everything changes. The culture changed. You could feel the climate change. Culture is what you do when you celebrate something, when you create something, and when you correct something. And when you change a football coach, and when you change a teacher, and when you change the leader and change the authority, you not just change the, the king or you change the authority, you change the entire culture. And what Jesus is saying is that the culture is like a fruit that's unhealthy on a tree. It was unable to produce fruit, and so it's going to get uprooted. And the challenge came not, just, not just, to, just to bring Jesus as king, as the authority, but it was to replace all other authorities on the earth from here to come. When we stand, when we go to heaven, when we stand before the Father, when we stand before Jesus, he is our authority. No matter who changes in the White House, in and out, or who changes in Congress, or who changes in your classroom, or who changes as your principal if you're a teacher, that ultimately authority comes from God. Ultimately, there's different authorities that we listen to in church and in, and in Christian circles and in, in faith. But ultimately, God's the only one that has ultimate authority, the ultimate authority to forgive, the ultimate authority to heal. Doctors are skilled as physicians, but they don't have authority to heal. Only God can heal. The highest judge in all the land might forgive you and pardon you of a ticket or pardon you of a crime that you've committed, but only God can forgive you. Only God can, can purchase you. Only God can pardon you. God is the ultimate authority. He came not just to bring, uh, just, to, just to be king of Jerusalem. He came to be king of the universe. And he came to be a different kind of king. And so this is the sermon in the sentence, which is on the screen above. It says that Jesus' arrival as king came to bring a new kingdom authority. This king would arrive on a donkey instead of a war horse. He would bring peace instead of war. And he would rule over the universe, not just Israel. Instead of killing his, his enemies, he would die for them. Jesus would not leave Israel, would not leave uh, Jerusalem with his life because of the message he was sending. He was upruling, uprooting and overturning the establishments um, within the religious system. He was not only removing the, the, the curtain between God and man, he was removing the entire temple system. That he says, I am the temple and the spirit of God resides in me. But he came to bring a different kingdom culture than had been brought before by the forefathers, a kingdom culture that could actually have fruit. This is what Zechariah, the full prophecy, said. Remember, they quoted the top half of it, but they missed the bottom half of it, and this is what the prophecy would fulfill. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, not on a war horse, not on a tank, not, not in an, air, air force, uh, <clears throat> an aircraft carrier. He came to ride in on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal. And then it says this, because I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, and I will take the war horses from Jerusalem. They thought he came to kill their enemies, but he came to lay his life down for their enemies and for them. He says, I came to break the battle bow. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river, capital R, from the Holy Spirit River, the Euphrates that represented the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth until the end of time. He didn't just come to become king of Jerusalem. He came to become king of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus came to do and came to change. So I have, um, I have a story for you this morning. It's a family story. My uh, uncle Peter, um, who is a major um, father kind of figure in my life, 
uh, is quite a few years older than me. I think he's in his 60s, and he grew up along with my dad um, and their family, probably about seven brothers and sisters um, in Hong Kong. And at the age of 14, he was one of the younger brothers. Not only did his parents die, but he caught glaucoma, and he became blind. He's uh, blind to this day. And so the family raised him up and took care of him um, in the absence of, you know, my grandfather and my grandmother, who kind of died in their 40s. But he was also um, uh, highly influenced by the church. There was kind of like a boys um, club, uh, like a sports after day, you know, after school kind of thing that he would go to after school. And he learned to become a Christian. He, he came alive to faith at a young age, about 14 or 15 in some part, because, um, because of his blindness, which is kind of the irony of the, of the scriptures that we've been reading lately and how blindness can lead to belief oftentimes. And so he went on to become a very different kind of person in the family. He was set apart. He was different. He, he stood apart. He wasn't like the rest of the, the siblings, the Wong family. Um, and he went on to be a very successful man. As a matter of fact, he went to go to Microsoft to go build software uh, for blind people in the 90s and retired at like a millionaire at the age of 40. And so uh, he went on to, to start a missions uh, program in China called Rainbow Missions, uh, in which he ministered to blind children um, for the cause of the kingdom and the cause of the gospel um, in China. And he has, you know, hundreds of blind kids uh, today that are part of this rain, Rainbow Mission. And I remember um, talking to him growing up, uh, going to visit in Hong Kong and visiting him and going to Seattle and visiting his house and things like that and recognizing not only because of his blindness, but because the culture in his heart and the way that he led his life. Even before I was a Christian, I could recognize that something was different about the authority that he had. Um, he, he would talk to me in these ways. We had this saying um, as a family. My grandfather's name was George, and he started a watch shop when he was very young and, and multiplied it into 27 watch shops all throughout Hong Kong today. And he had this saying that um, in family that George was the, the pioneer leader of the family. In fact, the imagery was something like this, that George was the locomotive in which all the other train cars would follow. And so each of the brothers and sisters in this Chinese parable would represent these train cars that would follow in the footsteps of the father, maybe not in terms of business, but in terms of excellence, that they would follow in the family values. That's very common in China to kind of have a very strong emphasis on family leadership, on authority structures, and on heritage. And so he was, George was this train that would go, and, and the family people would follow. And I remember he was speaking to me one time about Jesus. He was sharing the gospel with me when I was a young kid. And he said, you know how your dad sometimes talks about the locomotive train? I said, of course, I remember what this is. It's George, and he's following. He said, the thing about, um, I don't remember, we were just talking about life. He said, the thing about me is that at a very young age, um, I made the decision that I couldn't afford to allow George to be uh, the front of my locomotive. He said, at a very young age, I, I realized that I, I loved and I honored my, my father and that I wanted to do well by my father, and there's many things I could learn from my father, but I needed to put my capital F father in the place of my lowercase father. And I needed my capital F father to be, to be my leader. I needed him to be the locomotive. I needed him to drive my life. I needed him to be the authority. And you didn't need to hear that about Uncle Peter to know that he believed that. The way that he, he, he led his life in the context of our family would change the culture when he was around. I mean, first of all, he's blind. And so that's very offsetting and very, um, uh, very disarming. And he talked very quietly and he would listen to people. My family's really loud. You guys have families like this where you're kind of sarcastic and you jab at each other and you're always talking and you're moving to the next thing and you're ambitious and you're going to get the, take the next hill and the next mountain. And, and Uncle Peter would kind of move in and he would slow the conversation down and they would give way to him even though he was the youngest. He kind of had this authority that he would bring. And he would listen to people and not just kind of talk over them. Like he would really want to know what's in somebody's heart and that was different. And he would bring in children into the conversation as opposed to just sending them off to the table. And that was different. And you could tell, even if you weren't a Christian, you could tell he was following a different locomotive. And he would involve people, and, and he would pray for people. 
I mean, we would sit around, and typically the, the Chinese thing is you're sitting around eating or playing mahjong or you're doing different things in the family get-togethers and, and in Chinese New Year's and these things. But he would, he would call prayer meetings for people that didn't even pray. He'd say, Oliver, we're going to have a prayer meeting. Come into the, to the living room. And we'd all just do it. I don't know why we did it. But we would all come in, and he would lead songs on his guitar, Open the Eyes of My Heart. This blind guy is singing Open the Eyes of My Heart, and everybody's singing it because there's this authority. And authority isn't always office. Authority is, is influence. And he could influence because he, he had this authority because he wasn't following that authority. He was following this authority. He was following that kingdom authority is what I would give language to it, to it now. And kingdom authority is obvious. It's apparent. You can feel it in the room when it enters and you can feel it when it's exited. You can feel when, when Jesus enters and the palm branches begin, begin to fly. When you watch like some soldier come home from war to visit his, his second grade son in school and the kid breaks down crying, you don't need something to tell you how to respond. The response is imminent. It's evident. And when you see authority and when you see kingdom authority, you know it's better than all the other authorities. You know that the kingdom-centered coach, when they come into the team or the kingdom-centered teacher or the kingdom-centered dad or the kingdom-centered relevant re relative comes in, you don't even need to know Jesus to know that he comes from a different kind of authority. This is what Jesus came to bring, a, a different kind of of authority that's better. Do you guys remember Prince John and Robin Hood, the cartoon? Remember this guy? He's like a lion, and his, and his, and his brother went off to go and fight King, the real King, uh, King Richard III, or whatever his name was, went to go off and fight in the Crusades, and, and Prince John, whether it's the Disney version or any other, you know, Kevin, Kevin uh, whatever his name is, 1990s, Prince of Thieves version of it, but Prince John comes in, and he's massively insecure. Remember the little lion? And uh, he just keeps saying, power, power. And he's going, we will rob from the poor and give to the rich. Aha. You remember this? Nobody? Y'all didn't watch this? Y'all leave me out alone? Aha, aha. Power, power. You kiss the royal ring. I mean, he's just fun to talk about. I just kind of wanted to talk about it because it's fun to impersonate him. He's the picture of phony authority. He's the picture of false authority. He's a picture of trying to exaggerate power because of the lack of authority. But authority can speak in the quietest of whispers. Authority doesn't need to masquerade. Authority doesn't need to shout. Authority can only be given. It can't be taken. Authority doesn't need to have power to have power. Authority is power because it's, it's rightfully given. And remember how in the, in the cartoon, if you remember it, the crown could never quite fit on his head. He would put it on and his ears would kind of buckle out like this, but his head wasn't big enough and the crown didn't quite fit on his head because the authority uh, wasn't quite right, and they would sing about him. The Lost Boys were the Lost Boys. The, the Robin Hood and his merry men. I got the two, uh, the two Peter Pans and the Robin Hoods confused. But Robin Hood and his, and his men would sing about the phony king of England, a pox on the phony king of England. You can spot and you can recognize the phony authority once the real authority can come. And so this is what, this is what we're talking about today, the essential question, or the, the intentional question, rather. It asks this question. Do you follow and do you lead? with the authority that arrives on a donkey and leads to the cross? Do you follow and do you lead with the authority that comes from the kingdom of heaven, that, that comes from the cross? Jesus came to bring a different kind of authority, and you could feel it in the room when he entered, because the children shouted out. And Jesus said if the children didn't shout out, the rocks would have shouted out instead, because authority doesn't need a microphone to be loud. Authority can be quiet and send a message loud at the same time. And Jesus came to bring a kingdom authority and never give it back. To take a kingdom authority and never give it back. And, and instead of riding in on a tank, he rode in on a donkey. He arrived in humility. He, roll, roll, 
He rode in on a humble and meek vehicle, and he, and he left that place on a humble and meek throne on the cross. And so when you go to work, what this passage is saying is that you're working for that boss, but ultimately you're not working for the boss, you're working for him, because there's only one authority. And, and when you lead your children, you're, you're not actually ultimately parenting them. Ephesians would say, we're actually raising them in the Lord because you're not the ultimate authority. We are guides and we are mothers, we're brothers, we're coaches, but ultimately there is only, there's only one authority, and his name is Jesus, and he's on his throne, he's, he's on the cross, and he is a, a humble, humble authority. And when authority comes in, when kingdom authority comes in, it's just different. It feels different. It looks different, and it invites us to partake in it, to participate in it. The question of the day is, do you recognize that authority and when it's in the room, when it's not? Do you recognize how the authority of Christ, when it enters in the room, it kind of, it kind of dissipates all of the sarcasm in the room. Have you noticed that when, when the humble authority comes in the room, you know, like when, 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 when your brothers and your sisters, when the parents were away, you guys would do crazy stuff and there was no authority and you would just try and rob and take each other's authority and scream at each other and steal each other's toy and then your mom and your dad would come home and they would bring that safe authority back into perspective. When that authority comes into the room, when there's a, 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 an availability for, for Jesus to sit on the throne in a family, in a community, in a workplace, in a relationship, you can feel the culture change because it comes in on a donkey and it leads to the cross. When you, when you decide in your family, in your workplace, in your relationships, to listen and value of, of what others are doing and saying before you would, you would want to impose your value on the room, you come in on the donkey, and the king enters the room. When you decide to, when you decide to put somebody else's needs first, right, like the group is together, it's trying to figure out its group identity. Like what do we stand for? What are we about? And you come in and you don't have to be the leader. You don't have to be the boss. You could just be the English teacher on the third hall. And you could decide to come in on the donkey as opposed to the tank. You could decide to come in and bring the humility. You could decide to serve instead of be served. And when you do that, the king is brought in. The authority changes. The culture begins to change. And when we boast and when we lead and when we talk about what matters, we are continually talking about values. We are ultimately always talking about what matters most. We are talking about the, the point of it all. We're talking about what we're here for. We're talking about the purpose. And we have a decision to lead towards the cross or lead towards something else. And what Jesus is showing us is that his kingdom came to lead towards the cross. His kingdom came to lead towards sacrifice. His kingdom came to be a seed that was planted in the ground that would be dead, resurrect, and be unrecognizable to his original form. This is what Jesus came to do to bring his kingdom. You have a kingdom authority. He stood up on the mountain at the end of Matthew 28, and he says, all authority belongs to me on heaven and on earth. You go, therefore, and make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. You go, therefore, and carry your cross to help others carry their cross, to carry their cross, to carry their cross. You have authority. You have influence. You're a mother. You're a brother. You don't necessarily have to have a position in life to have an authority, but you do because you influence every room you're a part of. Every person has influence over every room, and you have an opportunity to decide how you enter the room and how you leave it. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem to proclaim a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of message, and ultimately, it is the only authority, 
It's not a competing authority. It's not a peered authority. It's not, a, it's not an authority that wants to create a strategic hamlet against other authorities. No, it's the king of kings. It's the lord of lords. It's the highest authority. It's the only true authority. There's only other phony kings in this land other than Jesus. And we have an opportunity to either submit to that authority or to do something else. And so when you enter into your Jerusalems, when you enter into your family, when you enter into your places of influence, do you come on the donkey do you delete to, and do you delete to the cross? Do you come on the, on the tank to go and attack your enemy or do you come on the donkey to lay down your life for the enemy? This is what Palm Sunday invites us to do. This is what Holy Week is all about. He's coming to bring a bigger kingdom. It's bigger than Israel. It's bigger than Greenville. It's bigger than our time. It's for all time. It's from the rivers down to the ends of the earth. It's coming to bring peace and not war. It's coming to be sustainable, endure past Rome and past the Galilean contingency and into eternity. This is what God's kingdom is all about, but it doesn't come by coming in on a tank and sitting on a throne. It comes in on riding a donkey and leading to the cross. Are you coming on the donkey? And are you leading to the cross? This is your opportunity to lead in his authority. Let's stand as we um, partake in a gospel moment. I don't know if I attached it to the slides this morning, but let me share the gospel with you before um, I invite Taylor to um, come up and lead us in worship in response this morning. No, but the gospel is the good news, and we want to share it every single time because the gospel is not talk, it's power. And I've talked for 35 minutes here, but ultimately only God can change and only God can influence. And the good news today is that God has come as a king. And the good news about that is, is that, is that as, as sinners, as people that aren't perfect, as people that are broken, as people that have fear, that have insecurities, as people that mismanage our authority, God didn't just forgive you and me because he had a good feeling about you and me. He forgave you and me because he was a king that pardoned us. And when the king pardons you, there's nothing that can overturn it. He's the highest authority, and he's the only one that has opportunity to forgive you. And I want to preach the gospel to you this morning that if, that if he says you're free, then you're free indeed. If he says you're forgiven, then you're forgiven indeed. If he says you're pure, then everyone else is wrong and he's right. And that's what the gospel message says. If you make him your king, he will be faithful to save you. He will be faithful to heal you. He will be faithful to protect you. And that is what the gospel message says this morning. It would just take a prayer, just a yes, wherever you are, to make Jesus your king, to make him your savior, to make him your king. You'd call on him and say, I have an opportunity to look at that, that person's influence or this person's reputation or this person, you know, I could look at this leader or I could look at this culture or I could look at this thing and worship that thing and make that my king or I have an opportunity to make him king and find myself in a kingdom that can carry me. I have an opportunity just for one simple prayer of faith. So Jesus, we come before you as king. We say hallelujah, Hosanna in the highest. You are raised up above every other king and it's good news to everyone, not just the Jews, that you are on that throne because you are a kind king and you're a good king and you're a faithful king. I thank you, you've never let us down and you've never left us alone, Jesus. And I thank you that in your kingdom is coming to, to reach out to strangers and neighbors and children and not uh, isolate them and, uh, and exclude them, God. I thank you that you, you are a faithful king that brings all people in and you are an authority that doesn't need to shout to have power, that just holds it in confidence. I thank you for your kingdom authority in our life. And because of your kingdom authority, we are set free and free indeed because the king has set us free and we are free this morning in this Easter season. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.